0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawai. Today is Saturday, uh, April the 22nd, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We well, thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on in this episode, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the evacuation of foreign nationals from the Republic of Sudan as fight continues inside uh, that very significant and strategic African state. Mass graves have been discovered in connection with crimes committed by a religious cult in Kenya We'll have details on that as well Several people also have been killed In an explosion in the West African state of Mali Where the government is battling rebels And the situation in Somalia Is intensifying with the government's offensive Against armed opposition forces In the second hour We look more in detail At the current situation In the Republic of Sudan Finally we listen to a briefing uh, From the ruling African National Congress, National Executive Committee on the Energy Crisis in the Republic of South Africa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, with uh, Daniel owino uh from the Kenyan uh, State uh, in East Africa, uh, the Shirati Jazz music. Uh, let's listen in.
2: Mama ya Kanu kama mwana Kenya Baba mwana Kenya Kenya hii yangu Kenya I love you we I do to to kwa ajonea ya yaba am tuna nyaka mbashaka kadang odog mau ngewe ndo okapani nyarubi lukombera ina we urobi na haya kiwindore haya wachopa nyaka Kabiki sumeva mwenye, yuko rudukui nusu viki borderline mchor. Kumbi sumbo romorabi mo, kapa kwa mso kumaveba wasedo inji viki borderline. Kufa kuingeza mu viki borderline kaka rangi. Eh, kumanoga rimali. O ringo, o jamuwe. Eh, aero, gajito, sondo, javera, kabondo, oyugi, kisi, drongo, rakuaro. Kanene, Aweendo, Uriiri, Migori. So Martin. you to you The it no way, I can eat the Punta Tacano. Motino Ringo. I have been through the door together. it, waited it. For a bit, you on you Oh my God! 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 Oh my my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! my my Obudore, obudore. Tomano miel, wamiel nyakache. Yasipe mano budoka nyu. Neli, neli. Deyamaja kindo, Newango. Lazaro newango. Undiolo warga rio newango boja bantu. Akida bulgu gudaje hudi. Yasipe dokakwaero, makadi beriweido. Kanya mano tishuni amigo. Eh? Eka eh, gano budore nyakache. Oi pali jadira pinje woro samura kata jogu ne gul jadira pandera anir fuku ukeje laji toyot kage tono ganda tu yi uonean owi no kwayo kwomu kwayo 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 owi no kwayo kwomu I'm from you are gonna thing. I'm you I'm we ungi to pinch up onee nokedo pile we ungi kaketo no banda to you oneon oh we no kwayo kwamu akwayo 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 oh we no kwayo kwamu yo ti An mabeda yo gongi mapi nana imose bedego berebo azikawo Ako yotele uwo no simbo yesai boda kiwe je ko yonani si konye awa matos
1: Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast, and uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, that was music uh, from the East African uh, state of Kenya. And, of course, uh, we're here today on uh, Saturday, uh, April twenty second, uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We just heard uh, from Daniel Oveno Masiani, uh, the Sharati Jazz, uh, from times past in East Africa, the late 1980s, uh, singing about the uh, former ruling party, the Kenya African National Union. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. And uh, these are some of the Headlines uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Journal Of course the uh, Main story uh, deals uh, with The ongoing conflict In the Republic of Sudan uh, Where uh, two different Military structures the Sudan Armed Forces uh, Headed by Abdel Fattah Al-Bahan and the Rapid Support Forces uh, headed uh, By Mohammed Hamdan Degallo uh, General Hermetti have been involved in fierce clashes uh, over the last week. Now, Despite the announcement of a three-day truce for the Il Al-Fatir fighting uh, between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces intensified in Khartoum earlier this morning, yesterday the army deployed ground troops to the capital in preparation for a potential street war against the support forces uh, who were stationed in government facilities after losing their military bases. Both warring parties announced a three-day truce uh, yesterday, but no agreement uh, was reached on how to monitor its implementation. Early this morning, explosions and clashes were reported in the area surrounding the general command of the army and the presidential palace in Khartoum, fighting then spread to the regional uh, neighborhoods uh, of Hilat Ahmad, Kojali and Akatweet uh, after previously being limited to the heart of the capital of Khartoum. According to reports uh, from our witnesses there was continued indiscriminate artillery shelling in the neighborhoods of Umbada and Karari uh, earlier this morning. In Umbada, Mansura, uh, six people were killed due to the shelling from the Corps of Engineers. <clears throat> Moreover, Warplanes were spotted flying over the Sudanese capital on the eighth day of the armed clashes between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces. It becomes evident that the announced truce did not accomplish the intended goals as civilians are fearful of leaving their homes. Services remain suspended and shops are closed. Furthermore, our hospitals are closed or out of service due to power cuts and a shortage in medical supplies. In additional news uh, from Sudan, the Sudanese army said earlier today it was coordinating efforts to evacuate foreign citizens and diplomats from the country on military aircraft, as the bloody fighting that has engulfed the vast African nation entered its second week today. Army Chief General Abdel Fattah al bahan said he would facilitate the evacuation of American, British, Chinese, and French citizens and diplomats from Sudan After speaking with the leaders of several countries that had requested help, the prospect has vexed officials, as most major airports have become battlegrounds, and movement out of the capital, Khartoum, has proven intensely dangerous. Burhan, uh, quote, agreed to provide the necessary assistance to secure such evacuations for various countries, unquote, uh, a Sudan military aide said questions have swirled over how the mass rescues of foreign citizens would unfold uh, with Sudan's main international airport closed and millions of people sheltering indoors as battles between the Sudanese army led by Burhan and a rival powerful paramilitary group rage in and around Khartoum including in the residential areas foreign countries have struggled to repatriate their citizens many trapped in their homes as food supplies dwindle The White House would not confirm the Sudanese military's announcement, quote, we have made very clear to both sides that they are responsible for ensuring the protection of civilians and noncombatants, unquote, the National Security Council said. Yesterday, the U.S. said it had no plans for a government-coordinated evacuation of the estimated 16,000 U.S. citizens trapped in the Republic of Sudan. Saudi Arabia announced the successful repatriation of some of its citizens earlier today, sharing footage of Saudi nationals and other foreigners welcomed with chocolate and flowers as they stepped off in an apparent evacuation ship at the Saudi port of Jeddah. And uh, if you want to hear more information in detail uh, in regard to the clashes and the crisis, overall crisis in the Republic of Sudan, uh, we'll have more detailed reports uh, in the following segment of our program. And You can also read the Pan-African Newswire. In uh, the state of Kenya, also in East Africa, the bodies, um, of course, the bodies of uh, several uh, individuals, and even in, including entire families, were still freshly wrapped in one bed sheet and lying side by side in yet another horrific scene at the church land linked to the cult leader, Paul McKenzie. McKenzie's troubles with the authorities and local leaders seemed to have begun uh, some five years ago. At that time, Malindi, uh, a member of parliament, Aisha Jumwa, uh, now the public service cabinet secretary, had protested against McKenzie and his church's actions, saying the cult leader was giving bribes to security agencies to prevent the closure of the church And his prosecution after allegedly being arrested three times and then of course released this perhaps explains how the pastor continued with his plans undetected for so long a bullish mckenzie was quoted by citizens tv in kenya during the time uh, saying quote if anyone feels offended about my summons and teachers in accordance to the scripture let them go to court and produce evidence i'm not afraid to serve my God, unquote, uh, McKenzie said. In September of 2017, police officers raided the Good News International Church and rescued about 93 children. Pastor McKenzie and some church members were also arrested. This was nearly six years ago. The preacher was later, later taken to court and charged with promoting and teaching children in an unregistered school at his church. He denied the charges and was released on 500,000 shillings bond with surety. During investigation, some of the children interrogated claims that education is satanic and said they had left their homes and schools to follow the pastor. The pastor's followers, who include primary, secondary school, and university students, defended their decisions to drop out of school, quoting Bible verses. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, at least 10 people were killed and dozens injured earlier today in a complex attack near a military base in central Mali in West Africa. That's according to the military forces in that country. A car bomb exploded near the camp in the town of Seva in the Mopti region, destroying houses and killing people, Colonel Suleimani Dembele, spokesman for the Malian army, told uh, the Associated Press, no one claimed responsibility for the attack, but Jihadis are known to operate in the area and have been ravishing the country for decades. While this military base has been targeted before, this is the largest attack on it so far this year. The base also hosts fighters uh, from the Wagner Group, a shadowy Russian military contractor that's been fighting alongside the Malian army for more than a year. Residents of Savari said they were going to morning prayers at the mosque when they heard a loud explosion. Quote, we heard gunfire. It was total confusion, unquote, said Usman Giado, a villager in the area. Days before the attack, a senior Malian official and three other people were killed in an ambush in an area of the country's southwest. On Friday, the al-Qaeda-linked group known as JNIM claimed responsibility for that attack in its media outlet, Al Zalaka Media Foundation. In another incident, in Mali's capital, Bamako, on Saturday, a military helicopter crashed in a residential neighborhood while returning from a mission. It is unclear if there are any casualties, and the Army said the situation is being assessed. And finally, uh, in the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, Somalia's military repulsed and attacked by jihadi fighters in a remote region of the country earlier this morning killing at least 18 of the al shabaab militants according to a top army official at least three civilians described as quote traditional elders unquote were killed in the fighting near the Masakawe town near general muhammad ahmed taradisho said this by telephone Masagawe uh, is located in the central region of the Gao gadud and home to a military base. Resident Youssef Sheikh told the media that militants overran the base, confiscated weapons, and burned battle wagons uh, during the attack. Quote, it was early in the morning, and Al-Shabaab completely took over the whole town, including the military base, forcing the government forces out of the town, unquote, he said. Sheikh said several people were killed, uh, in the attack and others were missing. Al-Shabaab, which has ties with Al-Qaeda, opposes the Somalian federal government in Mogadishu, the capital. The group intensified attacks on military bases in recent months after it lost control of territories and rural areas to government forces. Al-Shabaab members have fought for years to create an Islamic state in the Horn of Africa nation. African Union peacekeepers and occasional U.S. airstrikes on al-Shabaab, targets have tried to help keep the rebels at bay. Somalia also is facing its worst drought in decades. During a visit there earlier this month, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres appealed for, quote, massive international support, unquote, for uh, that Horn of Africa state. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Including this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, Journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan African NewsWire represents the only daily international news source on Pan African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan African NewsWire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Mm
3: -hmm. She's a married woman I
2: husband.
1: Muddy Waters uh, singing the classic uh, blues, number smokestack, lightning. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, April the 22nd, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And of course, um, we have been covering um, extensively the ongoing clashes in the Republic of Sudan, And uh, we're going to listen right now to a report dealing uh, with the international dimensions of the current uh, situation, security situation inside uh, the Republic of Sudan. Let's listen in.
0: The battle in Sudan rages on. Mediation efforts and ceasefires have so far failed. Can regional powers that back the rival sides bring enough pressure to stop the fighting, or is their involvement only complicating peace efforts? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Fuli Batibo. Fighting in Sudan between forces loyal to two generals is threatening to turn into a prolonged conflict. Violence erupted in Khartoum a week ago. That followed weeks of power struggles between Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and his deputy Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hemeti, the commander of the Rapid Support Forces or RSF. So far, hundreds of people have been killed and thousands injured. It's led to thousands more fleeing the capital Khartoum for neighboring Chad. Many of them fear this may be the beginning of a much wider conflict. Now, outside forces are complicating the situation, with both sides receiving support from regional and global powers. We'll get to our guests in a moment, but first, this report.
4: From chaos to calm. Intense street battles have thrown Sudan's capital into turmoil in the past few days. Its streets are emptying as thousands of people flee Khartoum. The conflict is driven by a power struggle between Sudan's army, led by Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the Rapid Support Forces, a paramilitary group, under Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hemedti. The two generals have been jostling for control of the country's economy and its military. That has torn up plans for a return to civilian rule. This destruction and sound of
5: gunfire did not leave room for happiness that our beloved people deserve. We are very sad for this pain. But there's still hope that together we'll pass this crisis and come
4: out of it more united and strong. One army, one nation. Sudan's strategic location on the Red Sea and its access to the Nile River and vast gold reserves have long been coveted by other powers, leading to both sides being backed by outside forces. Hemeti accuses Egypt of colluding with Burhan and sending fighter jets and soldiers to help the Sudanese military. Egypt has denied the allegations and said its forces were in Sudan for a joint military exercise. Hemedti has close ties with Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Libya. And Libyan warlord Khalifa Haftar has reportedly sent military supplies to the Rapid Support Forces, which he denies. The Russian mercenary organization Wagner Group has also been accused of plundering Sudan's gold resources to bankroll its operations in Ukraine.
6: We don't have yet uh, information that it has been actively engaged in conflict, but it is, of course, in, in no way it can be denied that it has been somehow behind the Amethyst organization and trying to protect that
7: RSF's dominations in Sudan's politics.
4: Israel is involved too. Its foreign minister, Eli Cohen, has been engaging with Burhan, on normalizing ties between the two countries in recent years. A prolonged conflict would also disrupt plans by UAE companies to build ports as well as China's investments in Sudan. Any escalation would have regional implications threatening nearby states like South Sudan that export oil through its northern neighbor. There would also be a risk of rising numbers of refugees fleeing across borders, causing more instability, and for Sudan itself, the longer the conflict goes on, the bigger the risk of it widening, and the greater the suffering of its people. Felix Nyawara for Inside Story.
0: Well, let's now bring in our guest for today's Inside Story. Joining us from Cairo is Matt Nashed, who is a journalist and analyst covering the Middle East and North Africa region in Khartoum, Sudan, Holud Hai, Founding Director at Confluence Advisory, a Sudan-based think tank. She's also host of Spotlight 249 on Capital FM Sudan. And in Montreal, Canada, is Khalid Medani, Associate Professor and Chair of the African Studies Program at McGill University. Khalid is also author of many political and economic publications on Sudan. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you for joining us. Holoud in Khartoum, let me start with you if I can. Uh, I understand that you've been coordinating Safe Passage for people to leave Khartoum. Can you tell us first about the current situation on the ground? Are people able to leave and if they are, where are they heading to? Well,
8: It's, it's quite a difficult gut-wrenching decision to make whether to stay or to go. There are risks, considerable risks to both. Some people have made the uh, calculation that it's, it's better to stay um, and wait for a better sort of you know, exit, a more secure exit and others have decided that it's too dangerous for them to stay. And so many are heading southwards towards Jazeera uh, State on Medani Street. But what we've just heard in the past few hours is that Medani Street has seen some clashes between the paramilitary RSF and the Sudan Armed Forces and has been um, taken over by the paramilitary forces, which makes it difficult um, for people to traverse, mostly because experiences of others. Uh, of passing checkpoints by the paramilitary forces um, say that people have experienced looting and people have experienced, um, you know,
0: being shot at and being sent back. So Mm. that is no longer as much of a viable option. Have people been able to leave the country and and head to Chad or other uh, neighboring countries?
8: Well, Khartoum is bang smack in the middle of Sudan. And so Mm. it's very difficult to get to any of Sudan's borders. Um, of course, Sudan borders many countries, and um, you said earlier that I was, you know, helping people to find safe passage. Um, everyone is doing that. Uh, mm. There are WhatsApp groups that have been set up, uh, sort of Twitter sites, uh, spaces that have been set up, and um, people are calling each other using, most importantly, local resistance committees um, who know the, the streets really well. Um, and it's just a case of, you know, at this point, almost Russian roulette, whether you right. make it through or not.
0: Khaloud, we are discussing today on Inside Story the foreign component to the confrontation. Are you aware on the ground in Sudan of any direct or indirect involvement by regional countries in the current fighting? We've heard reports of Libyan warlord Khalifa Haftar perhaps sending military support to uh, the paramilitary RSF, reports of Egypt sending support to, to the army. What is the extent of outside involvement in the current fighting? Well, those of us who have
8: access to the Internet, who still have access to the Internet, have been keeping up uh, with the reporting on what's going on in Sudan, and increasingly uh, people, you know, unsurprised by the fact that Sudan's neighbors would get involved for several reasons. Uh, one there, there's a history of some of these access, particularly Egypt favoring SAF and the United Am- Emirates sort of having working relationships with both the armed forces and the paramilitary forces, but favouring the paramilitary forces. Um, so, you know, there is an awareness that this is happening. By now, one would have expected that supplies, particularly for the paramilitary force, would be dwindling, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So it does track with reporting that there is external engagement.
0: All right, Matt Nashed in Cairo, let me come to you. Tell us more about uh, the foreign component to the current fighting. Who supports whom and to what end? What are some of these regional powers wanting to get out of Sudan.
9: Yeah, I think, you know, the fault lines right now look increasingly clear, right? And, and they're not so different, I think, than the fault lines that predated the fighting as well, uh, as, as Halud alluded to. Staff, um, uh, you know, Sudanese armed forces have always been favored and, and, and outright supported and then coordinated with by uh, Egypt. And this dates back to a very, very long history, it dates back to the current leadership in, in Egypt right now. Um, and, you know, as, as a result of that, um, I think Egypt obviously has a number of strategic interests that um, they feel is quite existential for them. And, and that's on one side that they would like to secure that. I mean, most notably, we have the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And, and obviously, um, you know, Egypt and Sunni's armed forces have coordinated with a number of military drills in order to kind of flex their muscles to Ethiopia in the past. And, uh, and i think there's also the economic side that egypt has benefited from a number of kind of cheap produce and, and, and trade that, that uh, with both armies controlling uh, significant amounts of their domestic economies um, that partnership is, has been become a lifeline for egypt as well considering its a very difficult economic situation right now so that's on that side egypt also of course has more of an ideological i would let's say less of an ideological sense but maybe just through its, its long-standing partnership. It also just has this view of security in a conventional sense, actually, where it, it views that the guarantors of security have to come through military men and military institutions. On the other side, very quickly, you know, uh, obviously, committee is, is being supported, um, you know, free data. It had a long relationship in this crisis, had quite a – Long sense of relationship with the Emirates as well, um, not as deep and as long as Egypt, obviously, with with the South military. But still, there was partners and providing gold mines there. There was obviously the, the mercenaries that were sent to Yemen accordingly, and so it's no surprise that obviously the Emirates are supporting um, Hamiti in this fight. I think both diplomatically and then right. and you know reportedly um, their militarily. hands seem to be in the background, you yeah. know, militarily as well, right? Yeah. Um, so so. I think, but just to conclude very quickly, there's the ideological prism in the way that the Emirates view security, which I think is very different than why, how the Egyptians view security. Uh, most mm-hmm. people understand why the Egyptians are doing this, but for the Emirates, I think there's, there's quite a very fundamental fear, I think, for them of, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, the remnants of, of Bashir's... Uh, you know, Islamist loyalists particularly, um, I think they feel that Burhan is particularly under pressure for them. There's reports that Burhan, um, you know, was under pressure from the Emirates to try to rein that constituency in, but it seems more and more reportedly that he is being pressured from within that. So, I mean, there's that element of it. But common to both of them, I'll stress, is that neither actor, regardless of how they view security interests for the Mm. Emirates, obviously doesn't want this ripple effect of political Islam in any way, but neither of them want a civilian democratic movement,
0: okay. and, and as a result
9: of the two groups they backed. We'll get
0: to that. We'll get to that in a moment, Matt. I just want to bring Khalid into the conversation and ask you, Khalid, about your thoughts about why some of these regional powers are involved in this conflict, and, and how you think their involvement a country like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, or, or the UAE, as Matt mentioned, how does it complicate the conflict?
10: Well, it complicates it greatly, not, in term, not only in terms of finding an eventual settlement uh, ceasefire and then hopefully to, to return to uh, discussions in terms of overseeing a civilian dem- democratic regime, but also um, these are two uh, generals that really are thriving on the financial uh, support that they're receiving from mm-hmm. the UAE on the part of Hemeti and, of course, uh, with respect um, to Burhan, the logistical and financial support from Egypt. But I did want to emphasize that overall it complicates it because of where Sudan is geographically. Mm -hmm. Uh, In addition to the financial patronage, we have uh, the uh, Red Sea area. Um, Sudan is extremely strategically placed. And so if we uh, look at it in a kind of um, a larger way, what we see um, over the last year since um, since the revolution of, of 2019, is the scramble over building a naval base in Port Sudan. And that is something that the UAE uh, cares deeply about. They've already invested $6 billion, uh, I believe estimated, to build a naval uh, base in Port Sudan. We have Russia, of course, interested in it, in it as well. The, U- the United States has conducted military exercises with mm-hmm. the UAE Port Sudan. And we also have China that's interested in mm-hmm. that region. So. That part of the story is crucial because it gives us a long-term understanding of why Sudan is so important. In addition to that, it's important to understand that there are extreme financial investments on the part of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, in addition to the logistics financial support. Uh, billions yeah. of dollars were land to deal Let with... Let me the ask you about,
0: about that. The UAE and Saudi Arabia are the financiers of the Sudanese army and the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, who, as Matt said, lent them fighters for the war in Yemen. But now that the war in Yemen is winding down, it seems, do you think these two sides can get the generals to listen? Khalid? I do. I think... That- Yes, I think that's a very important point. I do
10: think that 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 since uh, Saudi Arabia has sought an exit option in Yemen, um, and that and the UAE obviously, of course, has mired itself in Yemen and that uh, proved unsuccessful. I think that it's um, uh, most people acknowledge that at this point there are changing calculations on the part of the United Arab Emirates. They no longer have that kind of interest. In other words, Hemeti no longer serves the role that he uh, served so well for them. Uh, in Yemen and also, um, of course, in Libya when they also supported him against, uh, alongside Haftar um, in Libya. I think that calculation means that uh, there is a possibility that the UAE would uh, put pressure on Temetri, uh or rather withdraw uh, any kind of support. Um, I do believe that HaMetsi's desperation from his part, there are other calculations from Burhan, that- have very much to do uh, with the fact that he had lost the kind of external patronage that he wanted Uh, or or kind of enjoyed in the past, Mm. nor has he been able to get the kind of support from Ethiopia that he was counting on from Abiy Ahmed.
0: Okay, Hulud, let me uh, come to you on this. Uh, As we've heard from both Matt and uh, Khaled, there are a lot of players outside forces uh, in this conflict, which means a lot of would-be mediators, Um, you know, from from, uh, Egypt, of course, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, the Russians, even the Chinese to some extent, as you heard. How do you think this complicates uh, the solution to to, to ending the fighting and which of these mediators uh, do you think stands a chance at convincing the generals to stop the fighting?
8: Well, it complicates it massively. You know, the fact that you have these different actors who have different interests in Sudan, but also in the region. So, for example, um, the reporting that General Haftar in Libya is sending troops to support um, Hemeti and the paramilitary forces, whereas um, the Egyptians are sending uh, aerial support and other types of support to the Sudan armed forces on the other side, whereas in Libya, they're on the same side, Haftar and, and the Egyptians. And so there's a bit of a sort of chaotic scene here, and it makes it very unpredictable um, which interest will win out in, in which sort of geography. I think when it comes to mediators, it's not a case of choosing one over the other. But Clearly, who the most leverage right now? Yeah, so the thing is, is that that's exactly the point. That leverage is required. And none, no one, not even those who have leverage, have put leverage on the table, which is why we have had three consecutive failed ceasefires. But the Egyptians have been able to secure enough of the ceasefire to land their plane, pick up their soldiers, and leave. Uh, the Emiratis said that they have helped the Egyptians do that and secure those reassurances. So clearly there are avenues for a ceasefire. The issue is that all of these actors need to work together. They need to be in lockstep with each other, including all the P5 in Russia, China, and the U.S. and others. And that we haven't seen that happen. And we've seen a very fragmented
0: international response. Okay. Matt, you mentioned earlier that it is um, not in the interest of the Saudis or the Emiratis to have a civilian-led government uh, in Sudan. Why is that? And does that mean that these two countries cannot mediate in this conflict?
9: Well let me let me qualify my statement by saying I don't think it's the interest of of Pro democracy groups, genuine ones, in Sudan to, to have quote unquote civilian led, which I think mm-hmm. is just a euphemism for failed partnerships of military, um, you know, personalities that de facto control the state with civilian faces. So I think we need to use the same terminology that we would use for any Western democracy. It's either a mm-hmm. civilian one or it's a military controlled one. And mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I don't think regional players are interested at all. Uh, in a civilian um, democracy, and that's just not exclusive to Sudan. I don't think that they're interested in civilian rule anywhere throughout the region, because I think any example of that, or particularly one perhaps in Egypt's case that's so close to a neighborly, has ripple effects um, that can then, you know, obviously encourage a number of other people to envision a different life for themselves as well. And so, you know, absolutely, I think this is what I mean, I, I, I think from... Despite the conventional um, view of security from Egypt and the ideological more view of security from the Emirates, both of them fear a domino effect accordingly that can threaten, you know, their, their interests and the security of their regimes when they see any kind of democratic example um that that erupts anywhere and and sudan in many ways is actually a democratic example just maybe not in the sense of the blueprint of the quote-unquote nation state but the spirit of democracy is very much thriving there and then a lot of the things that khaloud mentioned in terms of how these resistance committees are assisting civilians you know that's that's indicative of how that spirit of, of of democracy and credibility of actors that are rallying for one another um is still existing even after the war
0: all right Uh, Khalid, your thoughts about this? What are these regional powers, including uh, the Emirates and and, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt even, uh, what are they more interested in right now? A stable Sudan or progress towards establishing a, a democratic government?
10: Well, they're not, uh, without question, I agree with your guest 100%, they're interested in a stable uh, Sudan. But the important question, or the question that raises itself, as we say, is can there be a stable Sudan with one of these generals taking over? And I think the, the answer is a categorical no. I think what the depth of this crisis, what it has demonstrated, uh, even on the part of um, Egypt, UAE, and Saudi Arabia, is uh, that a military government in Sudan uh, is not capable, actually, of delivering stability. And here we turn to the United States, which I think is important, including Mm. the Congress that asked for sanctions against these generals. Uh, For the United States, for good or bad, um, but uh, the the position is that there is no possibility for stability for Sudan and the region, which is even more important to them, without returning to some form of civilian government. I think that that is Do you think enough
0: international pressure has been applied by the U.S.?
10: Absolutely not. In fact, uh, there are Americans in Congress who are complaining and criticizing the Biden administration. However, as the the crisis deepens and, uh, you know, American uh, citizens are not even, you know, uh, taken out of Sudan except staff, I think the criticism in, in Washington is emerging. Uh, that, and uh, unfortunately, the depth of the crisis and it, uh, the, how it's going to threaten the region is uh, pushing the Biden administration to try to find an option here. Uh, and this has happened in the past. There is al- always the possibility the United States can actually put uh, pressure, particularly on Saudi Arabia and UAE, because actually they were part and parcel of helping to oversee the framework agreement that did not go through That's key. The, the final aspect that I'd like to p- mention is Egypt. Egypt mm-hmm. is absolutely not in in a a transition to the civilian government. But Egypt is making calculation from my miscalculation from my perspective in the sense that they they actually are underestimating the influence of the former members of the National Congress party that are backing Burhan. Mm -hmm. Uh they feel that the would be on their side and even though uh, the regime at least is opposed to the Islamists, so to speak, they are underestimating the strength and the role of the remnants, as we call in Sudan, of the National Congress Party. Here again we want to talk about a final important source of patronage and that is the vast wealth of the National Congress Party and its members. Much of that wealth actually is in other countries, other bank accounts. This is why discussions of targeted sanctions against these two generals is, I, I believe, is going to be extremely important. It's already on the table in Congress in the United States.
0: Okay, Hulud, your thoughts about this. Uh, Khalid says targeted sanctions against these two generals and he also said something interesting, that Sudan cannot be led by either of these two generals. If not them, then who or what? I
8: mean, no one here wants either general to rule. That has become, uh, that was always crystal clear in the way that uh, the pro-democracy movement has been pleading with the international community to heed their call for a fully civilian government. When Burhan and Himeti inherited the state from uh, Omar al-Bashir and started this, you know, sort of domino effect that has led us to where we are, um, they faced uh, ba- uh, sort of a resistance from uh, pro democracy groups at every turn, and it was the f- political ag- process and the political agreement preceding the clashes on Saturday that uh, really tried to um, embed m- military rule into into a sort of a, a future political dispensation that has been outright rejected by many people in this country. there is a sort of idealism i think within the international community that perhaps these journals the generals could be reformers. Perhaps they could somehow, and against all odds, midwife a civilian democracy in Sudan. Everyone in Sudan already knows that that's not possible. Um, so for me, it's a question of, you know, I think alternatives will emerge. I think we're in this conflict for a while, and, and as this conflict you know, continues, we will see uh, civilian alternatives emerge. But what is crystal clear right now is that neither one of these generals, even if one of them were to win militarily, will have the legitimacy after this level of conflict in Khartoum to be able to govern. So there's absolutely no stability to be found from either one of them uh, successfully coming out of this.
0: Matt, your thoughts about this. What do you believe is the way out of this current impasse? And and who do you think, coming back to our initial question, who do you think is best equipped today to mediate a successful resolution to this conflict?
9: Uh, Listen, the the way out to the current situation, um, I fear isn't gonna be as easy, and this is something that the the global community, in particular Western countries, have brought about themselves. Uh, I think failing to pay Um, sensitive and adequate attention to Sudan and being receptive to the nuances of the country and also the demands of the pro-democracy movement, um, they have, in a way, uh, through their miscalculations, um, and I think through their own timeframes and interests, accelerated a confrontation here between two generals. And and the reality is war is always easier to prevent than to stop. That said, I would echo, you know, Kalu's Thoughts and recommendations and calls here that it has to be a coordinated effort. And while there might be a Russian hand or for Chinese interests here or, or the U.S. Or, or whatever it might be, I do think, actually, that in Sudan maybe it's the optimism in me that unlike, you know, previous crises or conflicts, you know, that have erupted um, over the last 10 to 12 years, I namely think of, you know, for instance, Syria or, or Ukraine, where the Security Council has been so fundamentally polarized um, I, I do think that, uh, you know, there are uh, maybe a shared incentive here to uh, contain the crisis. I think we need to think right now in smaller steps, and, and, and that should be, you know, pressuring to get the immediate ceasefire, opening up humanitarian corridors, and prioritizing uh, civilian protection. And and I do think, you know, obviously, uh, the Security Council would be important because you're going to have larger partners that are larger countries that are tied to also having relations with Egypt and the Emirates as well. While they are U.S. partners, we understand global alliances are getting more blurry by the day. Uh, and and to have that pressure and just that the cohesive and coordination there, uh, especially with Chinese interests with the Belt and Road, they don't want to see this expand, um, then I think there, there, there would be a possibility to rein these these, these countries in. These are the countries that are backing these generals. And, and it's a sad reality that they, they need to be railed in and be cooperative uh, in order to put out the, the fire that they, you know, put gasoline on to begin with. Um, so, yeah.
0: yeah. Khalid, I'll give you yeah, the last sir. word because we're almost coming to, to the end of our program. Uh, your thoughts about how we end the current impasse and what happens if this conflict doesn't end swiftly?
10: Yes. Um, um, first of all, I want to echo what my colleagues have, have said, particularly with respect to the first step being uh, dealing with the humanitarian crisis. And there is a great deal of experience in terms of uh, pushing towards and continuing to push towards the ceasefire and a humanitarian cor- corridor, as our as uh, my colleague said. I do think that we have to focus, um, and the, these regional countries, international actors, have to focus not only about in the past what they got out of Sudan, but what what they have to lose, and I'm including even the European Union in terms of the issue of, of immigration uh, from Sudan, let's say, to Europe. Every country, every region that has been involved directly in this conflict has a great deal to lose. I think that a more coherent um, uh, kind of um, um, uh, cooperation among both regional external actors is, is extremely important, and here I would reference not only the Middle East countries, but actually kind of post-conflict African countries like Sierra Leone and Liberia. Mm. And that is that these conflicts have seen, as you know full well, a transition to civilian democracy. I think that that model is important and here I mentioned at the African context because right. the regional players of the African Union, the African countries who have the most to lose and may not necessarily have the greatest leverage, may must be included as an essential part of the solution because of their experience in the African continent of right. actually transitioning post-conflict societies into a civilian democracy. We cannot so look... Regional
0: African like IGAD and the African Union must be included thank you very much thank you we're going to leave the conversation there thank you to all three of you for such an insightful discussion Hulud Hayer in Cairo Matneshed in Cairo and Khalid Medani in montreal thank you very much once again and thank you too for watching you can always watch this program again anytime by visiting our website at aljazeera.com for further discussion go to our facebook page that's facebook.com forward slash aj inside story and of course you can join the conversation on twitter A handle is at aj inside story from me fully back and the whole team here in doha thanks for watching bye for now welcome back
1: and uh that was a uh discussion on uh the international uh ramifications of the ongoing crisis security crisis inside the republic of sudan now we want to listen to a debate uh that uh, aired over france 24 uh just uh, two days ago uh bringing together uh several uh figures uh in sudan as well as uh Others uh, who have been studying the situation there for some time. Uh, Let's listen in.
11: No ceasefire in sight. Does it lead to civil war? Sudan caught since last Saturday in the crossfire of an argument between top brass. Neither Junta leader Abdel Fattah al-Buram nor his nominal number two Mohammed Hamid Dangolo seem ready to listen to outside mediation attempts. The longer this death match continues, the greater the risk that armed factions at home and abroad get drawn in. Dangolo, better known as Hemeti, releasing uh, captured Egyptian soldiers whose presence uh, serves as a reminder that his rival did his officers' training with Egypt's coup leader turned President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. In the four years since the revolution that ousted longtime strongman Omar al-Bashir, Hamedi courted outside backers of his own, doing a deal with Russia's Wagner to secure gold mining, sending mercenaries to fight in the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen, and to Libya, whose rebel strongman denies a report that he sent ammunition to Hamedi this week. Could Sudan descend into both civil war and a proxy war? today in the France 24 debate we're asking who to stop the fighting and joining us uh, uh, from Madani documentary filmmaker Ibrahim Amab thank you for joining us
12: thank you thank you for with, giving me
11: this. with us as well as uh, activist uh, Gafar Mohamedou Saimin welcome back to the show thank you Egyptian journalist uh, Tamin Haikal is with us welcome welcome And uh, Horn of Africa researcher Roland Marchal with Thierry, the research wing of the French Political Science Institute. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you. The uh, France 24 debate where you can join the conversation, and you have on Facebook and Twitter, hashtag F24Debate. There's no other option but the military solution. A blunt General al Buran speaking a few hours ago to Al Jazeera after Sudan's ruling military council gave a surrender ultimatum to Hamedi and his rapid support forces. Uh, paramilitaries. Last couple of days we had uh, uh, been told maybe, maybe not uh, ceasefires at sundown. It's not happening this time. Uh, Let me begin with you, uh, Ibrahim Ahmad. Uh, Tell us what it's like uh, where you are.
12: Okay, so basically I was living in Airport Street in the middle of the fire next to the RSF headquarters that they overtook uh, about a year and a half ago from the NISS. So basically uh, around three kilometers from where I uh, live, it all started next to the stadium, the unfinished stadium. So it all started there. And then soon it came all over airport street and Riyadh area and uh, uh, military headquarters where the real fight happened. Uh, And then I traveled this morning to the closest city where everybody's fleeing to, which is Madani. But my friend lives uh, before Madani, so I'm staying here for a couple of days away from the fire. Because for the last uh, five days, you know, it was all about uh, heavy artillery, you know, um, aircraft, all kinds of bullets. Especially that where I was living, uh, they were right next. Uh, to the window. So all the blasts, all the bullets, uh, just when the, the the aircraft flies by, they all immediately start shooting with everything. What, what were those five aircraft.
11: days, Ibrahim, what were those five days like? Were you able to get out at times to go buy food, or did you have to stay indoors?
12: Well, it's, uh, food was accessible, but um, not that accessible. So the, the first two days, supermarkets were filled with people, Um, But as soon as uh, the RSF knew that there are a couple of big supermarkets around the area, they started attacking these supermarkets. So the supermarket owners were closing like since the second day or the third day ongoing, they immediately closed.
11: And so now you've uh, you've left. And uh, we saw images earlier of uh, people at the bus terminals uh, leaving the capital. Uh, What were people telling you?
12: So basically, um, most of the people are fleeing to the closest city, safest city, which is Madani. So a uh, lot, of, hundreds of people just fleeing, going to the bus station and then taking either big buses or small cars or minivans, any kind of vehicle, vehicle to go away. But there's a trick where uh, small cars are more dangerous than the mini, big vans because... They take it as the special cars. That means you have more money. So then it's, it's uh, either you get attacked and then thrown out of the car or you're shot. So chances are way worse if you're in a special car. So that's why most of the people go with minivan or big buses. And even the, the ticket price is the, like almost triple times the price.
11: Wow. Uh, Gaffar Mohamedou, of course, you have family uh, uh, in the capital.
6: I have a family in the capital. I have family in the rurals, in the Darfur. And Saturday, we woke up to, to see, this, to witness this horrific, horrific, you know, the bombardment, shelling by tanks, by artilleries, by airplanes. And this, uh, when I first thing came to my mind was to call my mom to see how she was, and I found out she was uh, hiding under her bed in Niala, which is one thousand some some thousand kilometers away from Khartoum. So the situation is really devastating.
11: Tell our viewers where is Niala exactly. Which Niala
6: part? Niala is the capital of South Darfur. Right. South capital of South Darfur is the western part of, uh, of Sudan. So this is roughly about 1000 uh, Because the United Nations
11: uh, today saying between 10 and 20,000 people have uh, fled Darfur for neighboring Chad. Many of those were in displaced camps, but it's also residents of the area. The
6: residents of the area, displacement camps, and the camps were attacked as well. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, uh, uh, the, one of the IDV uh, camps was attacked, and, you know, so this is just escalated beyond imaginable, so this situation is very devastating for the for the meantime. Yeah devastating situation
11: something coming to a head in 2019 Omar al-Bashir was ousted by a revolution but the army never left power at best sharing it with civilians Still in the mix, the head of the junta, who staged a fresh coup in 2021, and Hamedi, whose notorious Janjaweed militia did uh, Bashir's dirty work in Darfur before becoming the RSF. Emerald Maxwell has more on uh, this pivotal moment we're witnessing where the RSF was supposed to integrate the army.
7: They had maintained an awkward alliance since the 2021 coup. But the rivalry between Sudan's de facto head of state and his deputy has now boiled over, following tensions over how their respective forces should be integrated.
1: We want to build armed forces that respect the norms of democratic regimes.
7: General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan is head of the regular army. A career soldier from northern Sudan who rose the ranks under Omar al-Bashir's three-decade rule, in 2019 he was sworn in as Sudan's interim leader to steer the country towards democracy after Bashir's overthrow. But in October 2021 he dissolved the Joint Military-Civilian Council. At the time he had the support of Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Hemedti. Hamedti came from more humble origins as a camel trader, but is now one of Sudan's richest men, deputy head of state, and commander of the Rapid Support Forces paramilitary. I am a simple Bedouin man who grew up on the sidelines of Sudan and did not get anything from my country except violence. Much of Hamedti's power is derived from his dreaded RSF paramilitary, which he formed after taking up arms in the war in Darfur. He's played a prominent role in Sudan's politics for 10 years, first as a close ally of President Bashir, before helping to topple him in 2019. Every person should take their rights. If people don't take their rights, we will not advance. Hamedati and Burhan have jockeyed for international support since coming to power. While Hamedati has cozied up to Saudi Arabia, Burhan has normalised relations with Israel and repeatedly appealed to neighbour Egypt for assurances of support. The two men's rivalry has sabotaged popular aspirations for democracy and destabilised a country already dealing with economic breakdown.
11: Hello, Marshal. Did you see this coming? Uh, yes, it
5: was discussed for several months uh, because the, the tensions between the two men became uh, actually very loud uh, in public speeches over the last year. Nevertheless, I thought that uh, Hemeti wouldn't take the risk of uh, watching a war in the capital city because I, I believe from the very first day he has no chance to win not because because he's not liked by the population in Khartoum and then because he's a militia while uh, Burhan has got the, the support of the full army so all contingents even scatter all over the country and get support from Egypt
11: and yet it's day 6 and the fighting is still raging and and, which, and it turns out, you know, we, we have announcements that something's been captured and then it turns out we're not sure if it has yeah, or not. Yeah, uh,
5: let's say, uh, the news uh, is uh, is now a matter of war, so th- therefore I wouldn't believe much of what is written on social networks or statements made like the one made by Boran uh, just uh, just now. Uh, you have to be extremely uh, skeptical about all that. Nevertheless, uh, you, you have some uh, very clear parameters. Um, Burhan has the monopoly of air power. Uh, Burhan has many more armed, uh, heavy weapons than uh, Hemeti. Burhan has no problem with the logistics and uh, ammunition. Maybe Burhan has even uh, uh, additional support from uh, Egyptian special forces. Hemeti got here and there some reinforcements but uh, I doubt he could manage to stay uh, in Khartoum. Let us say, I I guess, in Khartoum, which means only in Khartoum. The fight may be over next week. Uh,
11: Maybe next week, but certainly not for now. Uh, Tamim Haikal, uh, it's an estimation that it's more than 100,000 fighters uh, for the RSF forces.
13: Both sides have a lot of firepower. Actually, yes, but um, even if a lot of observers, international observers, giving the uh, Sudanese army the, the advantage above the, the RSF, but RSF also, with the counting, uh, putting into consideration the, the wide space of Sudan and how they are getting a lot of support from Chad or from... Uh, other neighboring countries like uh, libya from hafta i think it's not about the balance of power and uh, the, the 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 power of the army here can can contain this because amiti uh, can make the guerrilla warfare can play uh, with that a tribal uh, society in Sudan that is very complicated also uh, as we can So what you're saying is the longer it goes on the more we have the chance of it will be more difficult there is will be more difficulties for the Sudanese army Uh, uh, we know that uh, there is a lot of support from Russia from Wagner group they are existing in Sudan to to secure the the gold mines we know also that he's taking a lot of support from the Emirates and they will not uh, leave him uh, be defeated easily in the next period all
6: right uh, yeah. I think uh, the, the 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 number uh, number is being uh, slightly exaggerated the hundred thousand I think this is the the propaganda that been lately you know uh, propagated by the political parties of uh, the central uh, the, the freedom and change, you know, uh, what we call the, 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 the freedom. Also for, for yeah. freedom and change. Yeah, for, uh, for freedom and change, Central Committee. I think the number has been exaggerated because they are looking <clears throat> to...
11: Well, exaggerate you know, or not, we're seeing this heavy urban yeah,
6: warfare. Yeah, we, we are seeing. So coming to, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the, the duration of war, I don't think this war is going to last any longer because the game... On the on the on the on the on the faraway regions like Darfur, uh, the East and the South, one has been uh, is done. The military has managed to take control of, you know, the the main military installation, and Himeti was left with few scattered uh, militia that were badly defeated. They, so they are desperately trying to get regrouped to rescue Himeti in Al Khartoum. So I don't think the game is going to be uh, last, uh, last longer. I- Ibrahim Ahmad, is that is that your sentiment that uh,
11: the prize is Khartoum and that that's where the fighting is going to be concentrated? Ibrahim Ahmad, can you hear us?
12: Yeah, yeah. Say again, can you repeat the question?
11: Uh, yeah, that, that the, you're feeling, do you agree that you, the feeling is that the prize is Khartoum and that's where the fighting is going to be concentrated?
12: Exactly, exactly. I mean, all of the focus uh, of the RSF has been targeting the headquarters, the areas around Riyadh, Khartoum Airport Street, uh, Khartoum 2, Khartoum 3, uh, uh, Forest Road, Omdurman, Bahri. They are attacking a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, bakeries, shops, everything. So the whole thing is focused on Khartoum. This is the big prize of the RSF. If they win over here, then they will take over the whole Sudan.
5: I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it will be. Yeah. More, you uh, know, yeah. you have to look back the, the history of the RSF. RSF mostly recruited in Darfur. So certainly there will be a problem in Darfur and uh, whatever are the military gains today by the Sudan Armed Forces. The question is elsewhere. Uh, Over the last year, um, RSF tried to recruit in uh, eastern Sudan, in the center, uh, even in the north, but this recruitment is too recent to really, uh, you know, give a sense of uh, identity, political identity to uh, to the militias. And so most of those people are going to simply uh, uh, hand over their weapons and escape, uh, trying to get an amnesty. So that's why the key issue is what is going to happen I'm not saying it's the only issues, but the key issues are what is going to happen in, in Khartoum, despite the fact that they will be fighting elsewhere, and then what's going to be the situation in Darfur, because in Darfur, uh, RSF will be, uh, could mix within his own constituency and therefore play a game against the Sudan armed forces, as they could have done on, on, to a certain extent some have done in the late 2000s. So-
11: so, that, yeah, and we can see the map there uh, showing uh, the, the Darfur region. Are you suggesting, Roland Marshall, that uh, the, the Janjaweeds uh, that have become the RSF, which were the henchmen uh, of the regime, could now become the rebels? Of course. Uh, of I course,
5: think you have to understand the leader of the, Jan- the so-called Janjaweed is called Musa Hilal. Musa yeah. Hilal uh, was the key uh, the key leader in in the in the mass killings that occur in 2003 2004 2005 5 years later Musa Hilal was a peacemaker in Darfur he was put in jail by Omar al-Bashir because he didn't accept just to be a puppet in the hand of Khartoum so you, you you have to see that there is a fluidity in the polit- in car- in Darfur politics that may have many implications uh, maybe surprising Western observers, but but making a lot of sense for local people.
6: Before I, I, I respond to the role, I just want to go back to the point of uh, the, your guest from Khartoum that said if the Himeti or rabbit support forces managed to take Khartoum, the game would be over an hour. I don't think so, because if, if it would be that easy, he would have uh, won or defeated the Sudanese armed forces in Brevrel, in Darfur. So even if he managed to defeat the SAF, Sudan National, uh, Sudan uh, Armed Forces in Khartoum, I think there is national sentiment of, 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 uh, of you know, uneasiness toward him. Because firstly, of his involvement in bloodshed in Darfur. And, and after that, of his just keep recruiting, you know, uh, the, the, the mercenaries or crossing borders. So the guy is fueled by the entire Sudanese as the most dangerous, even though the other camp. But he could become the rebel in Darfur. Yeah, you,
11: you agree with Konol Maksan on that?
6: He could be, but his impact would be, you know, I don't think he's going to be having that much impact because therefore, um, now, for the, for the main time, is under control of the south. At the same time, you have the other rebel group who were part of the... Uh, the, 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 the juba peace signatory group. So still you have like uh, many uh, the, the armed groups, you have Abdul in uh, uh, the, 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 the the mountain, you have many Manawi, you have a Jibreen, you have others, you have a Musa Ilal who is now siding with Burhan against him. So I don't see even if he 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 rebel on Darfur he will have a uh, we will survive that longer
11: the latest news we get this this uh this thursday is from the united nations concern over the 10 to 20,000 again who've uh, crossed over into neighboring chad uh earlier it was uh, a group of some 300 sudanese troops uh that uh, we don't know if they sought refuge in chad or were caught trying to loop around rsf forces either way they were disarmed
5: sudanese.
14: This Sudanese war does not concern us. We must raise awareness among our citizens. This is a war between the Sudanese. It does not concern us. Chadians. I am an Arab. I have relatives on the other side. But I am a Chadian Arab.
11: Spill over with Chad. There's been wars on between Sudan and Chad before.
5: Yeah, there have been. Now you have to ask yourself: Okay, if you were a, a RSF uh, fighter and you your uh, your boss has been defeated, wh- what is your uh, future? I guess uh, you know going back to Darfur, the situation won't be easy. So you will you will see: Okay, uh, if really uh, I fear much, I could go to South Sudan, I could go to Libya and find a job as a militiaman. Uh, paid for by wh- whatever AFTAR or others. Uh, and then, of course, they, I could go to CAR, but CAR is very poor, so I could loot certainly uh, here and there, but uh, to have a living in CAR at this very moment where the economic situation is so is so grim, I think very difficult. So the option is, is, is CHAD. Now, concerning CHAD, you have as well different uh, strategies one could be okay we are fed up with Debbie families we are opponents from the very first day of uh, of our birth and therefore we are going to fight him up to the end okay this is uh, possible there are some uh, good uh, you know explanation for that but this is only one scenario there is another scenario in which they will say okay we are ready to build an armed group except if we are welcome back to Njamena, which means whether the the regime in Jamena is going to spend money on us uh provide paying each potential fighters a certain amount of millions uh, uh france cfr and, and then resettling people in in Chad. so the idea that mechanically uh, Chad is under um, you know greed uh, danger is something that has to be looked at very carefully because I doubt that even to set up a military group to- today you need more than fighters you need leaders you need a cause some politicians able to articulate some kind of political agenda we don't see that today it may it may come tomorrow I'm not saying it's impossible. Far from that, but he doesn't exist today. So, which gives sometimes for politics and maybe uh, peace uh, to to prevail uh, against other strategies.
6: I think if uh, uh, coming back to the where uh, likely himeti and the, uh, the the rest of his defeated militia would run. I think the most likely, the most likely would be Central Africa, Central Africa, which is now currently border with the sudan is being taken under control of Wagner group and the, the most likely location because i don't think would they would resort they would dare to, to risk uh, of uh, getting out through libya through the sahara because uh south would be easily would, would easily target them so south sudan i don't think so south sudan as well is going to be very complicated for him to survive uh, unless he managed to enter through Ethiopia or Eritrea so that way he will be shipped by the, his uh, uh, external
11: allies you, like what, What's interesting is when you look at this map mm. five of the seven nations mm. that border Sudan mm. have armed conflicts or have just had armed conflicts in one form uh, or another and it shows that uh, the, wherever people go it, it is going to be uh, volatile yeah. There were fears of a spillover effect uh, uh, that were felt, well, uh, just last weekend, fighting at a military base north of Khartoum in Moreau, including the capture by the RSF of Egyptian soldiers. They'd been invited to Sudan by the junta leader. Um, 177 of them are now safely home, 27 of them were kept as prisoners, and uh, they were then um, shipped to the capital where reportedly, but it's not confirmed, they are... Uh, now in the hands uh, of the Red uh, Crescent. Uh, the uh, the showdown in Moreau illustrating just how quickly uh, bordering states uh, can become uh, uh, in- involved. What have you heard? Because, again, we've heard the, the, with the fog of war that Roland Marshall described, Tamim, we've heard conflicting reports. What's the status when it comes to Egypt's forces? What were they doing in Sudan? And what's their status now? Uh, of
13: course. First, that there is a lot of exaggeration about the Egyptian rule in Sudan. There was a, a joint a training protocol between the Sudanese and Egyptian forces and they had many exercises in the last year and, and the beginning of this year. Uh, we don't have clear information how many uh, personnel, in, in Egyptian personnel in Sudan till now. We know that yesterday uh, there is 200 at least arrived uh, Egyptian soil about uh, 27 or 28 because we we are not uh, also uh, sure about the number uh, that got uh, detained in uh, maui in the 15th of april got uh, uh, handed to the uh, red cross this morning and there is information that the egyptian embassy received them and maybe they will be in uh, in cairo uh, maybe tonight or tomorrow morning Uh, but uh, we uh, we don't understand uh, or we don't know how this deal uh, happened we know now that uh, uh, Emirates uh, got involved with as a mediators, and that gives us uh, um, a clear vision. So, hold on. It's
11: not possible to mediate a ceasefire, but it is possible
13: to mediate when it comes to those Egyptian soldiers. It seems that the Egyptians didn't have uh, enough tools to deal with the situation, uh, like as, uh, as we know till now. And the Emirates got involved in that, uh, and the only ceasefire that succeeded, it was the ceasefire... Uh, that happened between the two forces in the conflict to let the Egyptian uh, soldiers uh, flee from the from uh, the Khartoum airport. It, it seems also the Khartoum airport was, as believed, it was uh, closed in that moment. So w- we know that the Egyptians uh, have limited tools to uh, deal with the situation, especially if we see their relationship with the Russians, relationship with the Gulf states, and right now I think there is a lot of. Uh, diplomatic pushing from Egypt to let the United States and uh, maybe Britain and France got involved. See, in we, see
11: this is the thing for our viewers it's complicated because we've named so many countries in yes. lo- and it's <laughs> not your fault because we, 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 we get it up in is. the morning trying to get our heads around it's it. Complicated. Because Egypt is a backer
6: of Haftar in Libya. Somehow.
11: A uh, backer of Burhan in Sudan? It's a backer of Burhan in, in Sudan, Sudan. Mm. Uh, but perhaps their interests uh, don't uh, but their interests clash uh, when it comes to uh, what's going on uh, inside uh, of uh, of Sudan today. The Wall Street journal reporting that uh, last Monday Khalifa Haftar's nationalist forces who control eastern Libya supplied weapons to Hemeti's rsf quote Mr. Haftar, who is backed. Uh, by Russia and the United Arab Emirates sent at least one shipment of ammunition on Monday from Libya to Sudan to replenish supplies for General Dagalo. the people familiar with the matter said. They're quoting the people familiar with the matter. That prompted a denial by Haftar's uh, spokesperson, uh, who who said uh, not at all. Uh, And you should as well quote what they say
5: about Egyptian involvement in the same article.
11: Yeah, and yeah. in the same article, I'm getting to Men's. that point, I'm getting to that point, Roland Marshall, uh, it says <laughs> that the uh, Egyptians bombed a munitions depot uh, belonging to Hameti. Uh, uh, and it wasn't one plane. Mm.
3: Yeah, but Egyptian. More. So, Roland Marshall,
11: it, it, does I, the Wall Street st- Journal story stand up? what i what
5: i have uh, what i believe uh, i still uh, some independent checking needs to to confirm that but there have been two planes from libya to hemeti one by the libyan national army so add by after another one uh, a plane that took off from a military base that is controlled by wagner and this is according to who okay to hemeti Okay, so this seems to be uh, looking at the, the flights, and this seems to, uh, to be true. Uh, now we have to remind people that Hemeti played a role in Libya, supplied troops, and therefore Haftar is in debt with him. Uh, the, the other issue that is, uh, that is mentioned in the article is that uh, Egypt, that's why I, I said it previously, Egypt provided planes, ammunition, and not in one once time and so the the question is uh for us is to understand that the the alliance between egypt and gulf states you know is something difficult to sometimes because there are areas where interest overlaps and there are differences uh the so question, question the, yeah, the, again the question the viewers the viewers yeah, trying the, to keep the question the, at home yeah, well, yeah the, question, the backer of Haptar and yeah, libya the question i want the point i want to sudan? make is is sudan is not it is not Libya it is not Yemen in the sense that Sudan is seen by the Egyptian security as uh, The the frontier that's a, a country that has been colonized by Ottoman Egypt. Yeah. they believe that they have Genuinely the influence <coughs> they, they should uh, You know put their marks control the political regime. That's why they are absolutely antagonistic to any kind of civilian and democratic regime that's why Burhan is popular
6: uh, Egyptian Egyptian historically uh, until now the few Sudan as their backyard yard this is a uh, this is and they are uh, more close to the Burhan from that perspective because this is the the military institution have full 8 58 years of 63 years of Sudan independent and their involvement uh, should not be seen as a surprise. What is surprise, though, uh, the involvement of other actors, of like a Hector through... I don't think Hector is acting to just reciprocate what Himeti have done. I think he's acting through emirat, who is heavily involved, uh, because uh, Himeti is obviously his man, their man. And this is uh, brings us to the point, uh, to the... Uh, two days before the war broke off the uh, ambassador of Emirates was absent and then he came back after the war through Sudan. so
13: this can tell you something the, the, the that is, about the situation about the situation about egypt mm. is theoretically you're right. It's not about like this. Hmm? But that we should look to the realities in the ground. Yes. Egypt have uh, uh, very big problems, hmm. issues, economical and political issues in, in, internally. For the meantime, and, yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> in the meantime, we are talking about the last yeah. 10 years. Mm. And for the last 10 years, Egypt is depending on the money flow of the gulf. Yes. And for that, hmm. the, the tools that Egypt have regionally in the, in the region we can see that in Libya we can see that in Yemen we can see that in Sudan now we mm-hmm. don't have enough tools to be involved with that much we we saw in the last in the last few hours how Egypt asked for the support for the international support from the west and to, uh, for the mediation of the Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, the um, and, the West, to, and the West and the West was asked if, if Egypt have this power and and considering Sudan as before as the backyard and Egypt, the West and the we West and the the in is uh, Israel to get in <laughs> like course. like right. uh, like uh, here,
6: United here is
13: the situation let's just, uh,
11: let's just remind our viewers here that Egypt's interests run run in, deep in Sudan of course as deep as the Nile River is long yes. when tensions spike with uh, Ethiopia. Over the newly built uh, grand Renaissance dam, you have to look at a map. It's uh, Sudan that's in the middle uh, of all this. There, there you see on this map the the three dams uh, that that matter in this discussion: the Rosaries uh, dam, the, uh, and, and the Aswan dam, of course uh, uh, on the Egyptian side. So here's my question, and I'll put it to you first, uh, Tamim Haikal. Um, yeah. Uh, you, uh, Egypt, uh, financially, uh, it's, it needs that support from the Gulf. But this is a question of national security for them? Uh, for
13: national the, the, security the, the for Sudan, the and therefore they can break ranks with uh, of the course, Emirates? undoubtedly that Egypt's uh, interest with, uh, with Sudan uh, w- to cooperate with Al-Burhan also. It's to secure Al-Burhan's support, future support, for the case of the Renaissance Dam crisis, um, but I can see that the Egyptian power is limited. They have enough; they don't have enough space to 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 move in in that situation. Mm-hmm. We saw the dam crisis in the last few years. Ethiopia now is making uh, the fourth full of the of the dam mm-hmm. without any action uh, or aggressive action from Egypt or even diplomatic action from Egypt. Egypt cannot do anything about this, and we know. That's why uh, Ethiopia is taking a lot of support from the the Gulf in in that situation. Egypt is limited in its. I don't think. I don't think
6: Egypt is limited. uh, Let's go back to two years and half ago. When uh, two and a half years ago, when this uh, uh, the 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 25th uh, uh, October uh, 21, when the military coup uh, has took place, that was I think was under the blessing of the egyptian yeah, yeah, yeah. before 24 hours or 84 <coughs> hours before coup d'etat Fattah visited uh, Ij, uh, cairo uh, and mm-hmm. then he came back and he just you know uh, went on to the to to, 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 to the coup d'etat yeah. so story one, story one is
5: thing it. one thing we shouldn't forget mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. this fighting in khartoum mm-hmm. means the end of any transition to civilian rule and um, to a certain extent, we could see historical relations between uh, Egypt and Sudan. I think it's very right. On the other, there is another view. It's military regime, supporting military regime. That's why, to a certain extent, you will have uh, Maréchal Sisi and President Mahamat Kaka in Chad endorsing Buran because, to a large extent, this kind of regime needs international legitimation. And the fact that suddenly they are three together— mm-hmm means that uh,
11: the West has to keep quiet. Let me bring in Ibrahim uh, Ahmad, who's, who's uh, near Madani. Madani, which is on the Blue Nile. Uh, w- what matters more when it comes to, to Sudan's neighbors? The economic interests or whether or not their friends, as Roland Marchal says, uh, wear military uniforms?
12: Economics, definitely. I mean, I'm, I've been listening to the debate. But the the most important part we are all missing is the people. What's happening to the people, how people are fleeing their house, how this war is very different between the 2019, 2018, and the last coup. You know, people's houses are being destroyed. They are being bombed for no reason. People are fleeing just to go, uh, running out of the country. And if they come back, they will come back to no house their house is totally burned destroyed so this is the thing that matters to me the most uh, we do yeah we do care about the international relationships between uh, presidents who or who have whoever's enforced but we are forgetting about the people you know people in Darfur have been suffering for so long and i think my colleague knows that definitely how many uh, concentration camps have been burned, destroyed, people are being raped, and all of that. No one is really giving a shit about the people. It's all about who's building more power, who's controlling the dam, the Renaissance dam. The Ethiopian, uh, Abiy Ahmed, wants to take over. He wants to force his uh, power, uh, fighting the, uh, what are they called, Uh, Tigray region. But honestly, to me, myself, as a civilian, I don't give a damn about what they do. Well, what what matters, end,
11: Ibrahim, I, I suspect what matters most to you right now is getting a ceasefire. So we've spoken about all these foreign players. Who, not who,
12: ceasefire, wait, not only ceasefire, because ceasefire has happened before, and then they started again, and it stopped, and it started again. So it's like an ongoing loop. We need to make sure that they will cease fire, and we will start rebuilding Sudan. Okay, because so if you're are...
11: if you're looking to an outside player, who's the one who can either broker something that uh, ends the fighting for good, or who uh, forces both sides to put down their guns?
12: Uh, from a civilian point of view, we 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 don't really trust anybody. I mean, what all us uh, people are. Um, uh, uh, focused, uh, we are. We're all focused on one idea: is that no one has interest in Sudan for no reason. There's something behind what why they are interested. Whether it's Russia, uh, America, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Libya, Egypt, all of them has something to do with Sudan. And we all know that it's not up to good for the people, but it's for their own interest. So at the end of the day. What I want as a civilian is peace. I want my family to be, to live, to see uh, another day. I don't have to worry about someone uh, doing another coup or uh, someone's family is died and then we all cry over the internet. So it's, it's like it became so normal that when they tell you there's, there's a whole family died and killed you'll be like okay it's another day in sudan That's so nervous. that kind of mentality is not really uh healthy for your brain you know a lot of people have severe brain damage people are crying for no reason um kids are get, get. there are a lot of photos on the fa- on facebook where kids are playing with bullets imagine your kid is playing with bullets like three or three year old four year old and stuff My like it- that I've just been in that
11: for ten years. My, without... Let me bring in Gafar oh, yeah. on this. My,
12: my, my,
6: fellow comrade uh, uh, Ibrahim, I, I live with your, what you are living right now, and people, yes, they have suffered for so long. In the last thirty-something years, uh, we lost most our dears, but there is one chapter of the Sudan this revolution have to be closed. And that chapter was at this war that was anticipated by many victims because we successfully managed to push former regime to the point where his generals have to create this uh, military transition council to push him and to pretend to become a part of the revolution. But with less than two months, they show the real face. So what happened in April 2019 was another coup d'etat against the former regime. So this is all the result of the ongoing revolution. The ongoing revolution was, the, the slogan of the revolution was freedom, justice and peace. Freedom, justice and peace. Still we have no freedom. Still we have no justice which is the central pillar. Right. Oh. Right now, okay. there's an urgent problem, which so is urban stopped. warfare. So, yeah. how do you stop? <clears throat> how do you stop it? I'm coming to that point. How do you stop it? The criminal, the, these two perpetrators, who started,
13: one have to done other. only way. I think we need to be realistic about I'm realistic that. i After this because conflict happened, <clears throat> let it. Let us say it in that way. <clears throat> Actually, the only loser in that is the people. Yes, definitely. Um, sure. whatever the result of this conflict in the end, Mm. whatever it's it's staying for long or less, Mm. I think the democratic initiative Mm. in Sudan is Mm. going backward. I think we went even more more back than the the revolution time. No, no, yeah. no
11: other solution. Uh, Roland Marchand, we're out yeah, of time. The, no um, other solution other than more fighting for now.
5: Now, first, of, uh, you know, uh, if if time is short, this won't change into a civil war. This is, and this is, this makes the difference on uh, Egypt support or other supports. Is we have two military entities fighting each other. It's not two population. We have to differentiate that. So it's that, it's much more limited. That's one point. The second point is, whether we like it or not we have uh, actually two mechanisms. One is called uh, uh, the, this uh, group by uh, USA, UK, um, Saudi Arabia, and UAE, uh, trying to do something. And then you have uh, IGAD, the regional organization, African Union, and uh, the United Nations. OK, those two uh, sets are working uh, to, to, towards a mediation. Uh, We could say, okay, what they they did was is not impressive because they failed dramatically. We could as well remember that the Sudanese, including the civilians, may have some responsibilities in what is happening today, uh, as I believe very much. But then the point is uh, whether this could go somewhere. I believe, yes, it could go somewhere. I do not believe that we could get a ceasefire for Eid, I'm so sorry for Sudan families, Uh, I believe it will take still one one week or so. And then the question will be to make sure that the the defeat of one partner, of one protagonist is, is, uh, is, is, uh, I would say, organized in a way that you don't have a dissemination of violence everywhere. Throughout the whole
11: country. We're out of time. Ibrahim Ahmad, uh, how are you preparing for Eid under these circumstances where you've had to flee the capital?
12: Well, to me, honestly, I'm just trying to live the, the, to, to tomorrow and after tomorrow in peace without a lot of airplanes, a lot of gunshots around me, and just try to focus on what will happen in the next uh, 30 days. I'm, honestly, to my, uh, I don't want to flee the country. I will never do that for no reason, unless, like, the whole everything's last done. But I'm one of the guys who will always keep pushing to build the country and then going back. I've been out in, since the first day in the revolution, and ha- I have a lot of reasons to fly out and then leave, you know, dodging bullets, being arrested many, several times, being hit, head shaved and everything. But I have the, you know, the power to always keep pushing and, and showing people true patriotism. And then the love of the country, because in my belief, if you don't love your country, your country will never go forward one inch. So we we'll always.
11: So we 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 uh, we we wish you and yours a uh, a safe Eid under these uh, uh, very trying circumstances. I want to thank you uh, so much, Ibrahim Ahmad, for for being with us. From outside Medani, I want to thank as well Ghaffar Mouadhan of Sayin, as well uh, Tamim Haikal, Roland Marchal. Thank you for being with us here in the France 24 debate.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a debate uh, over uh, the current uh, situation In uh, the Republic of Sudan, uh, where uh, fighting uh, has been raging now for the last week. And uh, if you want to follow in detail uh, further uh, the situation in the Republic of Sudan from various perspectives, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire. That's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, for uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, This program is being aired on Saturday, April the 22nd, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
15: forget you Woman I've tried so hard to forget you Girl you know you won't be true And now I'm looking for somebody new Woman you've been trying to wreck my life A woman, you've been trying to rate my life. You know I've been good to you. I do believe. Oh, you got somebody new. Well. bed with you,
3: I'll give you everything,
15: I do believe you got another man, you got another man.
1: to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. That was the music of none other than uh, Howlin' Wolf, uh, Mr. Chester Arthur Burnett uh, from Sunflower uh, County, uh, Mississippi, and uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Saturday evening, April 22nd, uh, 2023. And uh, the African National Congress, the ruling party in the Republic of South Africa, held a national executive committee meeting this weekend, and uh, they presented a briefing uh, to uh, the international press. Uh, This was aired over the South African Broadcasting Corporation. And uh, we're going to listen to uh, that briefing discussing the current energy crisis uh, in the Republic of South Africa Known uh, internally as load shedding, uh, where there are periodic brownouts and blackouts uh, in Africa's most industrialized state, let's listen uh, to this briefing uh, from the African National Congress National Executive Committee uh, in South Africa.
16: The spokesperson of uh, the ANC, Masengi, about to start that briefing, lies there now.
17: undertaking to keep you, abreast uh, with the conversations that are taking place at the ANC one of the that we're dealing with this morning that um, and I'm just framing this particular briefing related to the economy and uh, also with a sharp focus on the electricity situation. And with that, to lead us in this briefing, we are joined by Comrade Kenzani Mamudu Kubai who is here, and I need to emphasize that, is here not as a minister, is here as a member of the National Executive Committee of the ANC and the Chairperson of the Economic Transformation Committee and therefore our key messenger on matters related to the economy, Tom Ramokuba, again not here as Minister of Electricity but here as a, as a member of the National Executive Committee of the ANC, as well as part of the ETC subcommittee. Without any waste of time, I now hand over to the Chair of the ETC to provide an overview, after which um shall immediately hand over to Comrade Kutler to, to go to some of the specifics Over to you, Comrade
16: Kutler. Thank you very much, Comrade um, Marshenge, um, our spokesperson of the NC. Um, good morning, um, comrades, friends, members of the media. We are updating the nation on the work of ETC. We have been um, working, as you know, from the conference. We had um, the um, in January that looked at matters that are immediate and urgent that we needed to focus on as the subcommittee. Out of that we developed a program of action and quite a lot of work that we are doing. But mainly today we will focus on the impact in terms of economic growth by energy security and what the, what we as ANC are looking at in terms of the impact of load shedding in the country and the response thereof. You know that um, at the beginning of the year the SG would have done a media briefing after the, the hotel where he outlined action plans from those and instructed us as deployees in that other capacity or instructed deployees to go into cabinet or into government and implement those resolutions. Um, what we are doing here, there's a specific focus because the NCs is worried about the impact of load shedding in the country and we had to come and brief the organization. We started with a subcommittee meeting where we held the meeting and included provinces, ETC chairs and those comrades who were deployed in parliament were part of the subcommittee. We moved from there to brief the NWC and that culminated to the meeting today of the NEC, um, which we briefed to the NEC yesterday. Part of what is worrying us as the NEC is the impact of load shedding, both in terms of social social issues security, but also most in terms of economic matters. When we look at the impact of load-shading specifically on security matters, you'd hear quite a number of people raising threats in terms of their lives. Women who are coming back from work where there are no streetlights and therefore becoming more vulnerable because there's load-shading. But again, when you listen to even Minister Adele, when he addresses every time there's issues of uh, security. He would also link that to saying at the point where there was no electricity, this is what has happened in terms of the attack, one such incident is what just happened in the past few days. Again, when you look at issues around social issues, social issues should look at the impact, whether you talk about in terms of services, uh, the impact of load shedding in hospitals. We are aware, for example, that a lot of money is going into generators into them in our hospitals because they've got to keep the lights on, they've got to be able to ensure that they, pro- they provide the necessary services but especially your operations that needs to be done where there is a need to have electricity. So those costs that are taking even in our health sector. Whether you talk about even in terms of those of who are in the building environment, would say the cost of production for even building material is high. You go into education, the impact thereof for learners to be able to do their schoolwork. So the impact of electricity broadly, um, it does not only impact on the economy. And we look at the impact again on economic growth. You would see that production in South Africa continues to go down. There's reported issues around the cost of doing business were higher, but because of electricity now, if you are running a business, you've got to be able to provide alternative energy. But those who are small businesses, some of them can not afford, and therefore in the hours there's no electricity they close. So this has an impact in terms of our ability to be able to create jobs, our ability to be able to see the economic growth to recovery to pre-COVID-19 numbers or even beyond. Um, So that's why the focus here in terms of energy. I must say there are quite a number of things that have been reported in the media that are a bit concerning. I think I must deal with them up front. In the process of our work, uh, both in terms of the subcommittee and engaging with our employees, I think I saw an article that talks about Comrade Sputler being under attack and I must deal with it up front. There is no Sputler who is under attack. We, as the subcommittee, have called all our employees to a meeting, which was held last week Friday. They presented uniform approach and also they were part of this presentation that was received by the ANC. So there isn't a point of difference amongst our employees. We engage robustly, all of us, and give feedback, including myself as the chairman capacity as chair. So we are working together, all of us, and one of the issues that we have set as the subcommittee is that part of why we're bringing everyone together and we're bringing the organization on board on these issues is to ensure that there's one voice, no, there's many voices, but one message. And that's the message that we're carrying today in terms of the impact of nurturing and what needs to be done, and all our comrades in, in government understand what we need to do. So as they take what we have discussed up front, uh, they will be able to take a position of the ANC into the work that they have to do. And I must say that despite us giving instruction to employees, it does not mean that we are going to compromise governance protocols and good governance practices. So we still respect that, for example, ESCOM as an entity has an accounting authority and has executives and they will have to observe that in terms of doing the work. Also again, understanding that ministers in cabinet have their own responsibility and activities, but we still have to respond. But because we are responsible for mobilization of electoral vote, we are here in government on the basis or everybody in government on the basis of NC winning election and promising voters a particular outcome. And that's why our employees have to respond to and because this is the feedback we get from our structures as even NWC went across the country to do as we go across the country to do RTCs. The issue of load sharing has been on the top priority. The other issue again, we are concerned again from the NC. Um, we see particularly, because we've seen a growth of lobby groups, while we respect their rights in terms of the constitution, but we think that we've got to at some point be patriotic in terms of South Africa and put South Africa first. We are concerned about at times the attacks even on comrades put by media and journalists. Where we differ, we should differ, but what we are having here is an engineering and a technical problem. It's not a political problem at ESCO. And therefore, when issues are being raised, I think it's important that all of us, whether analysts, whether journalists, whether what we have, is to first remember that what we have here is a situation where we've got to rescue the economy. We've got to save lives, we've got to save jobs. And in the manner that we have dealt with COVID-19 in response, where we work together as South Africans, we've got to do that now and again my appeal to NGOs that at times when there is supposed to be progress in various areas, whether it's in terms of emergency procurement, we find ourselves in terms of court forgetting that as we do that we impact on ordinary South Africans to be able to have an opportunity to put food on their table. This is the impact we have and that's why we are calling for South Africans to work with us as the African National Congress to assist us to rebuild the country in terms of the economy, to rebuild uh, our society, but also to ensure that people do not continue where they are. Now, there are quite a number of areas that uh, I'll allow Comrade Butler to go into the details in terms of technical reporting into the NEC, but I thought let me just give this overview from ETC that we continue to address the issues around energy security, maintenance of our plants issues of capacity has come, accountability of our employees, and all the issues that needs to ensure that we get electricity. So the NC says to its employees today in this NC that we've got to stop sharing and that's the mandate we get from conference. And today, that's why I'll, I'll give to Comrades Gouda to go into detail in terms of the presentation that has been taken into the NC, the areas of intervention. Thank you very much.
14: No, thank you very much, Comrade uh, Mamaloko, and uh, good morning, thanks for extending this opportunity for us to share with you the deliberations uh, in the NEC, as Comrade Mamaloko has indicated. The NEC sees this as an economic emergency that requires extraordinary measures for us to be able to address the challenges uh, of, uh, of low shedding. And one of the issues that the NEC raised was uh, increased levels of uh, sabotage on uh, the infrastructure. Of course, it's about logistics infrastructure, water infrastructure, but in this instance also about the uh, electricity infrastructure. You saw the manifestations of this um, uh, uh, acts of uh, sabotage uh, most recently now in Twani when uh, our pylons are, were under attack, uh, they collapse in the major parts of uh, Twani. Uh, Pretoria East were without uh, electricity for a considerable period of time and also that undermined the ability of uh, rainwater to replenish uh, the reservoirs and that's why a lot of uh, areas in Swanee Water uh, Clue, parts of uh, Swanee East uh, didn't have uh, electricity for a a period of time. So the NEC has uh, instructed that the deployees uh, should uh, accelerate our efforts to address the issues of uh, sabotage from men. Electricity point of view, what we're doing is that we've got, uh, I think it's work stream number six that is focusing on uh, on acts of uh, sabotage, corruption, um, uh, and uh, and, uh, and, uh, malfeasance in the area of uh, energy generation. And now the NEC has um, considered uh, and applied its mind, and uh, we have agreed on uh, that there has to be two parts to the intervention uh, from a timeline point of view. The first one is the one that is immediate, what we call the, the winter interventions. Because why is winter receiving a special attention? Is because we know that the demand is going to far outstrip supply, uh, is going to increase exponentially, and the gap between generation or uh, supply and demand is going to grow. And therefore, we need to um, employ extraordinary measures to close the gap so that uh, we don't put additional pressure on the on the South African economy and then the, and that's the period that what we call the timelines, is uh, zero to six months. So zero means these are the actions that have to be taken up immediately um, and then uh, the next uh, timeline is uh, six to 18 months. Um, uh, so the point I need to make is that there are interventions that are residing within the first package of, of uh, timelines that they are going to uh, go beyond. Accelerated the effort. So, with regards to zero to six months, so what is it that must be done immediately uh, to relieve uh, the the stages of load shedding, the intensity that is? Uh, so that uh, the economy can uh, can continue to uh, if you like uh, um, uh, sustain itself of course uh, you you are not going to avoid the uh, load shedding at least in this period even with these interventions that we are making but uh, we want to ensure that uh, the levels of load shedding still make it possible for major industries to operate for families and households to meet, uh, if you like, uh, their daily requirements, uh, like I said, for business also to meet their their financial, their commercial objectives for key installations to continue to operate, so that there is no collapse to the South African economy. So essentially, we are proposing four interventions. So f- the first one is that we need to run the peaking plants, if you like, the open cycle gas turbines. Um, we know that the total capacity there is about 5,300 megawatts or so. And the key uh, um, uh, intervention is around the the availability of the feedstock or, if you like, the diesel to make it possible for us to be able to address this matter. So what we know about the diesel situation is that uh, in the 18 percent tariff increase that NERSA has uh, granted to ESCOM, the ESCOM is building 8 billion rands to procure diesel. And then we know that uh, in terms of the fiscal relief that the Minister of Finance, has provided to escom there's uh, an additional 22 billion rand that uh, escom has made available for the procurement of diesel so the point we are making there is that uh, we have as i speak to you confirmed about 30 billion rand that is available for for diesel procurement and then the second part in relation to to ocgt the open cycle gas turbines and the issue around diesel was uh, was that government should consider to to buy directly from uh, suppliers because what that does is it gives us an opportunity to stretch to stretch the 30 billion rand so that whatever savings we are making you are making from cutting out the the middlemen or if you like uh, some of uh, uh, these um, majors that are providing ESCOM uh, uh, with uh, with the diesel that saving can help us to essentially procure additional diesel so we are able to to stretch the rent and then the other third the uh, area in relation to the OCGT is that we need to address the logistics uh, issues uh, at Ankerlech because the diesel that is provided at that uh, power station uh, comes by road It's road based whilst uh, other uh, picking plants is uh, is by uh, it's piped uh, and therefore the logistics there is that you can as I speak to you now, just have 100 trucks a day uh, bringing in that diesel, but it's a technical issue. The point I'm making is that the the NEC has had a overall uh, and an in-depth uh, technical discussion of what it takes. Uh, so that's on the the first intervention is to ensure that we are able to uh, to exploit the capacity that exists in our open gas um, uh, cycle, uh, open cycle gas turbines. If you look at the the period, uh, I think it's uh, 20, 2013, 2014 to 2017, these uh, OCGTs, the open cycle gas turbines, were on load. On load meaning they were producing uh, electricity at about 20, 21% of the time. And now as I speak to you, they are producing at about 11.5% of the time. So essentially we are calling on the doubling of, uh, of, uh, of uh, the exploitation of the o- OCGT. Then the second intervention, so that's the first intervention, the second intervention is our continued effort to improve the energy availability factor, essentially the efficiency of, uh, of, the, of the power station. So what ESCOM does, it has also what we call planned uh, capability loss factor, essentially on their own voluntarily, they take units out uh, to fix them, return them. Uh, Uh, better health and were able to exploit uh, as uh, much as possible the installed uh, uh, capacity or the design capacity of those units. So what ESCOM has been doing in preparation for winter, they had ramped up the plant capability loss factor and part of uh, the stage 6 load shedding earlier on in April had to do with the fact that uh, there was, uh, if you like, ESCOM was very aggressive in taking out these units so that we get to prepare for winter. So we know now between the period of um, of May to June, you are only going to have uh, just three units that will be out on uh, on, uh, on planned uh, maintenance. So essentially we are engaging all of these units to ensure that they generate electricity for us uh, uh, and we are confident that uh, we should be able to get the the amount of megawatts that are necessary to provide the relief uh, that is required because if you look at the ESCOM uh, winter outlook uh, um, is that they they plan that the unplanned capability loss factor essentially units that are are, are failing not because ESCOM voluntarily takes them out but because they are tripping and there are issues of maintenance we need to keep that down to about 15,000 megawatts. But we can see that the trend line suggests that it can go up to 18,000 megawatts. So in order to undermine, if you like, the adverse effects of uh, more units failing, I think uh, ESCOM will uh, reduce the rate at which they're taking out units. Like I said, uh, three units are planned to to go out. And then as part of the work that we're doing, working with the private sector, We have identified also priority stations that require additional technical assistance to work with with the general managers there. And what the NEC said is that let's galvanize this uh, expertise to go and support the the kind of work that is done at the station level so that we are able to to maintain uh, the the efficiency of these uh, power stations at an acceptable level. And then the third area of intervention is around demand side interventions. So demand side. so remember to resolve this problem, you ramp up, uh, you either ramp up generation, and that's why I talk about the open cycle gas turbine, I spoke about the, the issues around the energy availability factor, that limiting the plant the maintenance, and that means that uh, we are ramping up generation. And then you, the other option is to also ensure that you re- reduce uh, demand. And our view, in the view of the NEC, is that we must do both: ramp up generation and reduce demand. So on the on the demand side, we know that uh, in 2010, ESCOM ran uh, a very successful campaign. Out of that campaign, they were able to uh, save about 3,000 megawatts, essentially three stages of load shedding. So we're going back to that uh, aggressive campaigning, but this time around. We've got uh, uh, the advantage of technology having uh, being advanced. Uh, there are load limiters. We can be able to install uh, equipment telemetrics to ensure that we're able to remotely disconnect, uh, uh, if you like, uh, these appliances that are consuming a lot of. Uh, of uh, energy in particular the, uh, the, the Giza so we know that the households consume close to 16% of installed capacity at peak they can consume up to 35,000 uh, percent and we know that the total number of Giza's in the country Conservatively is about eight million, so there lies the opportunity. So we are going to be very aggressive and ensure that uh, we support the efforts for the installation of this uh, um, um, uh, telemetrics, if you like, uh, um, uh, innovations to help us to address the issues of demand side. In addition to a rolling um, a, a, a public campaign to encourage uh, to encourage households, and then the fourth intervention is around. Uh, uh, protecting what you call key and strategic installations so i 'm talking about hospitals i 'm talking about data centers uh, you can mention them so those are uh, and, uh, and national key points so we uh, are going to come to introduce if you like uh, um, emergency emergency um, uh, solutions uh, to ensure that uh, there's uninterrupted supply of uh, energy in those spaces. We know that uh, part of the, what is before the court or in the public di- discourse is that uh, please isolate these areas, essentially exempt them from load no sharing. But from a technical point of view, it's not possible to, uh, to isolate or exempt some of these uh, strategic installations. And therefore, what NEC says that in addition to the three above measures, make sure that you are able to uh, address this, uh, this, uh, this uh, area. So as a result of this intervention, we think that uh, conservatively we can have uh, either add or save, um, if you like, in total. We'll have about uh, 4,500 megawatts, so it's possible during this period of six, uh, 0 to 6 months. Remember this intervention on improving the EAF they go beyond the uh, 18 months. The period, we're not going to install the uh, 8 million uh, of these gadgets uh, in the next six months, so we're going to continue to be aggressive as part of our efforts to ensure that we, we address uh, the, the energy security in the country. So that's the first package of intervention. Then the second package of interventions is what is possible 6 to 18 months. So what do we know about the period 6 to 18 months? So first is that uh, the Kusile Unit 123 that had failed as a result of uh, uh, the the flue gas desulfurization uh, challenges that led to the structural integrity of the chimney at Kusile. Uh, We we removed about 2,100 megawatts. So we know that in terms of uh, our timelines, that uh, three of these, uh, these units are going to come uh, on stream. Uh, they are going to come on stream uh, um, late this year. The last of the three units is going to come on stream by the 24th of December. The first one will come in, uh, in, uh, in November. So we know now that uh, by Christmas Eve, we'll have an additional 2,100 megawatts from FUSIDE. And then there is an additional unit that was not fired, uh, essentially is going to be commissioned, and this unit will come in February of uh, next year. So that's another 700 megawatts of, uh, that will be installed uh, at Kusili. Uh, and then the other one... There's a MEDUP before, you know, there was a fire at MEDUP in August of 2021, it took out 800 megawatts. In terms of the plan, the schedule was that uh, it's going to come back uh, uh, in May of 2025. Uh, our general managers there in, uh, in uh, MEDUP have done tremendous work, because part of the reason why it takes long is what we call lead items, big items that has got long lead time. So essentially when you order a generator uh, from the OEMs uh, because of uh, they are inundated with regu- regards to demand, you have to join the queue and you find that uh, you are going to get that equipment uh, two to three years later. So what uh, the team uh, has been doing at um, um, uh, Midupi, they've been uh, um, just, uh, if you like, uh, assessing what is available throughout the world and we're able to find a generator secondhand in uh, in Netherlands, Uh, it's about 15 years of age. So you can ask, are you buying a generator that is 15 years of age, yes, we are doing that because uh, the design life of this this equipment is about 50 to 60 years, so there's still a good 35 to 45 years of life left in there. And as a result of that, we're able to bring back uh, this unit uh, in uh, April of uh, 2024. And then the, the so that's the uh, Kusile the uh, 2,100 megawatts by December another 700 megawatts by February so you have uh, 2,800 megawatts. And then that's MIDI will be uniform by April 2024. You have got 800 megawatts. So there's 3,600 megawatts there. And then I did say that we'll continue to work on the improvement of the EAF in terms of the ESCOM board approved for strategy. By 2024, the energy availability factor should be at sixty-five percent. If now Uh, You had to to factor in the fact that we lost three units at Kusile and that the Midupi unit four is not uh, available. If these three units at Kusile did not suffer the catastrophic failure, the the plan of ESCOM board approved, uh, the the, 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 the board approved ESCOM strategy of 60% EAF by 2023 would have been achieved. But we are confident we are going to achieve that uh, 65% energy availability factor. And then the fourth area is the issue around the NEC says, look, we are faced with a crisis. So as we speak now, as we are having this press conference, a lot of uh, uh, communities, uh, business they are not operating because we are under a, a, a load shedding. Of course, there's a bit of relief now we're at Stage 3 uh, and it's because of uh, reduced demand and some of the units that have come back. But we know that the winter outlook looks bad, so we're saying in the midst of this crisis. Uh, It is important that uh, we continue to sweat the assets that we have, and these are the units that are generating, that are giving us uh, the megawatts, and that there should be a delayed uh, decommissioning of these plants. And as we do that, that should not be um, undermining our ability for and um, the decarbonization agenda we are not retreating from the nationally determined contributions we are not uh, moving away from the net zero path we are committed to that and the JP project so that's an important part that must be emphasized that in the context of those timelines what we are simply doing is that we need to ensure that the lights are on as we commit re- still committing ourselves to that decarbonization agenda the JP program and then on the big windows we say by May of uh, this, uh, this year, so essentially next, uh, next month, we open BID Window 7. But that BID Window 7 must allocate, uh, be allocated in areas where there's existing grid capacity. So part of the problems that we had with the previous bid window, the fact that we have not been able to provide the entire allocation, is that in the Eastern Cape, Western Cape and Northern Cape, we don't have grid capacity. So now, bid window 7 of the 5,000 megawatts, we are going to focus on the north, northwest, the Free State, Mpumalanga and Limpopo, because that's where northwest and Free State, there's still uh, some room for grid capacity and Mpumalanga, the sufficient grid capacity for us to be able to evacuate these uh, these uh, electrons.
7: Again in
14: May, so although I'm saying these projects, the big windows are opening in May but you will not see the electricity in May because there's Financial close, and then you get to construction, and that's the reason that we are saying that uh, they must be located in area where the areas rather where there's, uh, there's grid capacity, and that's why we are talking. These things are possible to get the electrons and evacuate them. That is for the economy to get the benefit of additional generation will happen uh, in that period of uh, of eighteen months. So the point we are making is that as we are addressing the immediate crisis, we must be able to have foresight to resolve the issues of energy security going into the future. Again, in May, I'm going to go out for 1,200 megawatts of uh, battery storage. Why is that important? Is that as we roll out PV, for it to best approximate the base load, it must be paired with some storage capacity so that uh, during the night and the morning peaks when you don't have the sunlight, you draw that energy from your, your, your storage. So we'll do 1,200 of battery and 3,000 megawatts of, uh, of gas. And then the other thing that we are going to do, we are going to, the NEC is a grid, we are going to open a, a mega window or if you like a rolling big window for renewables. So here we're talking 15,000 megawatts and going. Uh, upward. Why is that important? It's important to communicate the message that South Africa is convinced and the NEC is convinced that renewable energy is the future. So our commitment to the nationally determined contributions, the issues around the the JEP, the issues around the the net zero path, we are reconfirming that stance and that's why we are opening up this uh, big window. And parallel to that, the NEC said you must uh, ensure that we start uh, uh, with agency to address the issues of grid capacity, its integrity and capacity so that as and when these, uh, these electrons come on stream we are able to evacuate them. Again, 6 to 18 months, what we'll be doing is to ensure that we procure emergency power so the NEC was delivering. You say it's emergency, it means that uh, it's a definite uh, time period, and that time period uh, in the view of the NEC uh, can be uh, more than uh, five years. Why is that five years? It's because uh, the time it takes for us to be able to get this additional capacity of renewables, address some of the issues with regards to grid capacity, we project it could take us that uh, amount of time and then as i speak to you uh, escom is in negotiations uh, with uh, um, additional capacity from mozambique uh, about 1000 megawatts and we think that once the power purchase agreement is signed we should be able to have it on the grid uh, in the next 6 months we do have a uh, grid capacity that comes from uh, from uh, uh, from uh, from mozambique that should not be a problem so so in total Our we are envisaged that as a minimum in the next uh, six to eighteen months, there's 12,000 megawatts that the additional megawatts that can be generated to ensure that we don't just address uh, the immediate shortage, but we are able to respond to the ability of the South African economy to grow and uh, address its uh, its sovereign uh, um, uh, um, uh, ambitions of growing the economy, creating jobs and industrialising. And then in conclusion. NEC says on the back of this um, aggressive agenda of um, uh, solar PV, of course, solar PV is also part of uh, what will straddle between the now and going into uh, the next 18 months. So part of uh, that intervention, the fifth intervention on the first one of zero to five is the acceleration of the rollout of solar PV. NEC has directed that government must uh, work out a financing facility That will make it possible for even poor households to access PV solutions so that these PV solutions are not only um, a a preserve of the rich and those who can afford, those who can raise money through the debt capital market, the commercial banks, but the poor must also have uh, access to that. So on the bank of that rollout of PV. And the, the next uh, uh, program of renewable, NEC says we must localize and industrialize so that we are able to create the additional industrial capacity in the country to meet the demand going into the future. And we are confident that there will be investments because they see-through of the pipeline and the investors will be able to invest and then the second one is that we must train as many people as possible to be installers so that they, in the course of resolving a crisis we are seizing the opportunities that they are sitting in this crisis and we should be able to create jobs and as directed that government must start with immediate effect with regards to the training agenda. So in conclusion, zero to six months.
1: Welcome back. And uh, that was a briefing uh, from the African National Congress Executive Committee uh, on uh, the energy crisis in the Republic of South Africa. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, and uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to listen uh, to this program again and again and share it with other potential listeners, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out our program uh, with the music of Detroit's own Charles McPherson uh, with the album entitled Bebop Revisited. This is Abayomi Ezekoway signing off, and have a beautiful week.
3: Thank you.